Well, I once heard another pastor tell a story about how someone in his uh, church wanted to invite a friend, or they had invited a friend, and so they were talking to the pastor before Sunday, and they said, I've invited a friend, so please preach something good. And, <laughs> and he got there, he brought his friend, and the scripture reading was open, and the pastor had picked some of the begats from the Old Testament, and so and so begat so and so, and then they died. And, and it, usually it goes, it tells they lived for so long, they had their first son, and then they died. And the next person lived for so long, they had their first son, and then they died. And then they lived for so long, had their son, and then they died. And the, the guy who invited his friend was sitting in the church thinking, Oh, this is horrible. Why did you pick this boring genealogy to preach when I brought my friend to church for the first time? And. It turns out that his friend was listening and came up later and said, I was listening to that passage being preached and I heard this person lived and then he died and this person lived and then he died and this person lived and then he died and it reminded me that I'm going to die and I need to get my life right with the Lord. And he was saved through the begats. So hopefully you get something good out of the begats this morning. I don't know if you've ever wondered why Jesus chose to cause the Messiah to be born of a virgin. Which kind of throws a monkey wrench in the begats. But it was a plan that God had for a long time. Before Jesus ever got here, it was prophesied in Isaiah over 700 years before Jesus was born. It was prophesied that He would come through a virgin. And even thousands of years before Christ's birth, all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve had, uh, they had sinned and so God was kicking them out and He had cursed the land and he, had, um, he was cursing the serpent too because Satan had fooled them into eating the fruit. And so He said, I will put enmity, is this curse to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And the word seed is translated just the way it's found. It's, it can mean seed. It can mean you know the stuff that goes to make babies. And, but you need both a mom and a dad to combine their seed to make a child. But it's said from the woman's seed without a... So there's a little bit of prophecy all the way back in the book of Genesis about this virgin birth. I mean, it, it, you've got to tie all Scripture together to get that out, but it's there. And... So God planned all the way from the beginning. He planned it that way. But why did He choose that method? I mean, it does make for a very distinctive entry into the world. I doubt any of your mothers were virgins when they had you. I don't think mine was. Um, I'm pretty sure if, if mine was, I would have caused a whole lot less trouble to my parents as a teenager. But uh, I'm, I'm pretty positive that I was not immaculately conceived. That, but there there wouldn't have been anything morally wrong if the Messiah had come from a normal conception. There's nothing immoral about that. You just they don't have normal parents and have normal birth. And, and there are some who say that, you might have heard this before, there are some people who say that Jesus could not have an earthly father because it would make him sinful. But that's a bunch of hogwash. There's, sin is not a genetic problem. It's not something that you get in your genes. It's not a physical trait that's passed down from your parents. Sin is a morality problem. It's something that you choose to do against God. It's, it's, it's a wrong choice that you make. And, and there can be 
generational patterns that are passed down from parents to children. People who live sinful lifestyles, lifestyles tend to teach their children to copy their lifestyles, and that can go on through generations. People who live good lifestyles can pass on good lifestyles through generations. And so there are those patterns that develop. doesn't mean you have to follow that pattern. There's a pattern that's been broken in my family, and I'm sure some of you guys have stories of patterns that have been broken. Praise the Lord that God can do that. But, uh, but sin is not a genetic thing. So it, there's nothing morally wrong if Jesus had had uh, you know, a normal conception from a mom and a dad. So why did God choose that? Christ would have been just as holy and divine regardless of how the egg cell that turned into the zygote that became the fetus that became the man who gave his life on a cross for the sins of the world, it would have, wouldn't have mattered, really, morally. So Jesus is the Christ because he, not because of how he was born, but because he has always been the Son of God and always will be the Son of God. Jesus is part of that Trinity that, that, that is God. There has never been a time when Jesus was not. Jesus has always been. The only difference between the one who spoke the universe into being and the one who was born of a virgin and laid in a manger is the human body that he put on. And that's the only difference between Jesus of all eternity and the Jesus who is now and will be forever and ever. And because of that, I wanted to take a brief look at the genealogy of Jesus. Because there's a reason it's here. All Scripture is inspired. And there's purpose behind it. There's reason that God inspired all Scripture. So there's a reason God put these genealogies in here. Jesus' family line reveals some, actually some real interesting things that I think you'll, you'll be pleased to find out if you don't already know. And, and also there's, there's some... Some drama that goes on here that between the, the God's plan of salvation and the devil's attempt to thwart the grace of God. I mean, you'll find that as we go through this, this genealogy. But it's also, it, it very practically confirms, you know, aside from all the drama that, that we'll learn about, it confirms that the eternal creator of the universe really did step out of the glory of the heavenly realm and put on human flesh that God joined humanity. He condescended Himself from the, the ruler of the universe into a little baby boy who grew up a human life. And miraculously, I mean, it's hard to comprehend how that happens, but it was a miracle, and, and God Almighty somehow made Himself into a man and was born that helpless little baby that we sing about at Christmas time, and he lived an exemplary life, a perfect life, a sinless life, and, and he died to become our Savior. And Jesus' family line, his earthly family line, because his heavenly family line is just, I am. But his earthly family line, his, his ancestors, humanly down through the years, marks the life of Christ as a well-recorded historical fact that's, that's just a fact of human history that he, he was born into the world and he lived his life and he died and was resurrected. And, and in Luke, there's two genealogies. There's one in Luke and there's one in Matthew and they're a little bit different. We'll, go through, we'll figure out that why, but uh, the, the, in Luke, the line is traced all the way from Adam, the first man 
down to Joseph. And it's, it's interesting to note that there's a hidden message in the genealogy of Jesus in, in Luke there. The names of Christ in the family line, the first ten names, because in Luke it goes all the way back to Adam. In Matthew it starts at Abraham, but we know that obviously Abraham connects to Adam. But in Luke, the first ten names, if you take those first ten names and you translate their meanings it, from the Hebrew, it spells out a sentence. So, for instance, Adam, the word Adam means man, because he was the first man. And Seth, who was his son, means appointed. And Enosh, the next in the line, means mortal. Canaan, the next person, means shall come down. Or, I'm sorry, that means sorrow. Canaan is sorrow. Mahalalel means praised or blessed of God. Jared is a verb that means shall come down. Enoch is a, it's an academic term, so it basically means teaching. <clears throat> and Methuselah means his death. And Shelah, or Selah that you hear in Psalms, means shall bring or come forth. And Lamech means despairing, which is where we get our word lamenting from, Lamech, lament. And Noah means comfort or, or rest. And so if you put all those together... It, it makes an impressive summary of the Gospel of Christ written thousands of years before Jesus was ever born. Uh, and it was the first people who, to, who walked the earth in their family lines. There's lucky they were born in that order. But if you put their names together, it means man is appointed moral sorrow, mortal sorrow, and the blessed God shall come down teaching that His death shall bring the despairing comfort. From the first ten generations in the Bible, the first ten parents and children. This is not just a list of names in a book. I mean, it is that. It is a historical list of names so that we can have that marked in history. The genealogies of of ancient Israel were kept very well, so that's how we can figure out where this all happened in the timeline of human events and and mark it in history. So it is a list of names, but it's not just a list of names. God has been at work putting every minute detail in this in his inspired word in order to declare his truth and make it undeniable that this is God's inspired truth and not just some list of names people wrote down I won't get too much into the language structure of this genealogy because none of us speak Hebrew read Hebrew or, or, or Greek but as you probably know we get the New Testament manuscripts from from the you know their original Greek manuscripts written thousands of years ago that we still have cotton tens of thousands of little pieces of that we've put together to make sure that you know they all match each other down through the centuries but it comes from greek is where our new testament is written in and if you take the first part of matthew where we find the genealogy of jesus that there's this amazing pattern of sevens and it's it's amazing just how involved and intricate this is in the genealogy of jesus there are names yeah, divisible by seven. So there's in, in the number of names that are in the geneal- genealogy of Jesus, you can divide that number of names by seven. And not only that, but there in that genealogy, there are all the words in the genealogy are divisible by seven. As you know, seven is a very biblical number. Seven is kind of the, the number for God, for perfection. So there are seven, the words are divisible by seven. The number of words. The number of nouns are divisible by seven in the Greek. The number of letters are divisible by seven. 
The number of vowels are divisible by seven. The number of consonants are divisible by seven. The number of words that begin with a vowel divisible by seven. The number of words that begin with a consonant. The number of words that occur more than once. And there's, a, there's all these, I mean, there's more and more layers, but there, it's all divisible by seven. And if you had to make up out of your imagination a list of names that fit those rules, that you could divide all the letters, all the names, all the, the, the vowels, all the consonants, all the words that are individual words that don't have a copy, all the words that do have a copy, if you had to sit down and make sure that all of that, as you wrote out this imaginary list of names that you just made up, that it was all divisible by seven, you'd spend probably years trying to get the mathematics to work out just right so that you could put all this mathematical correction into the, the words that you wrote. On top of that, in, in Hebrew and Greek, the letters stand for numbers. And so they each have, every letter has a numerical value. If you add up the numbers of the, the letters, that's also divisible by seven. And so it's, it's this, like, this parity check, which is a computer term that's like something that re- tells the computer that the data that it's reading is accurate. And it's this multiple-layered parity check written into the code of the languages of the Bible to say that this was not written by humans. I mean, it was written down by humans, but that it was not conceived by humans. It was conceived in the mind of God and encoded in such a way as to say that this is not just a list of names. That this is the Word of God. This is the family of Jesus. And this is to remind you that this is a very miraculous story, a miraculous book, a miraculous recording of history. And God has been at work to make sure that we know that this is His truth and that it's undeniable. And and it's uh, so if you... There's, here's not only the inspired Word of God that we're reminded by all this kind of mathematical encoding, but in the actual generations of people who lived and had kids and named their children and, and became part of the Gospel in doing so, from all the way back from Adam and those ten names that spell out the Gospel and all this encoding in the, in the numbers of the, the sevens kind of divided into the, into the, the, the list of names, you know, it's, it's, those people were real people. I mean, they're recorded in history. And through the Old Testament, we can go back and we can cross-check the New Testament genealogy with the Old Testament genealogies to make sure it's not just something made up. And we can find those names. So it's like, not only did the, did the language of the Greek get written down in such a way, encoded in such a way as to prove that this isn't just people writing down a made-up list of names, but people were born in the right order so that their names could be recorded in such a way as this code would work in the Greek language. I mean, it's amazing that they were willing to be born in in the right order so that their names could line up just right so that when Jesus was born, all this would work. I mean, it's a miracle, not just how it was written, but in how it actually came to be, how these people were born. God has been orchestrating and at work to make sure that His plan was carried out the way He wanted it to be carried out from the beginning. And it's a miracle. And it's amazing. And, and, and it's the same way. It's not just the genealogy. You find this encoding, this, like the, um, this letter values and the number of seven all throughout the book. I mean, as you go through the rest of the chapter and you can find these amazing 
connections and, and how God made sure that, it's, that we know that by going and looking and doing this research that this is an amazing book. And you thought it was just a boring list of names. It's so much more. The book of Matthew starts off with the family line of Jesus. Um, the book of Luke, you got to go a little bit into the third chapter, but in the book of Matthew, it's the very first uh, chapter starts off with the genealogy. And it's slightly different, and we'll get into a few reasons of why. One of that is, is Matthew was Jewish. Luke was not Jewish. He was a Gentile, and Matthew was Jewish. So Matthew goes to Abraham, who's the, considered the father of the Jews. So his list begins with Abraham. Of course, we, we know the genealogy from Adam to Abraham, so that's implied uh, from the Old Testament. Even if we didn't, it's written out in, in Luke's genealogy, just in case. And, and then both Luke and Matthew from Abraham to King David, follow the same basic line. It's the same family line from Abraham to King David. And Matthew 1, our Scripture, starts off like this. It says, This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And obviously there's sons in between that, but those are the important people to kind of mark who Jesus is. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Remember, Judah was one of the tribes of Israel and all his brothers were the other 11 tribes of Israel. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nation. Nation, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And it might have sounded like I had all the pronunciations right, but I didn't have any of the, like just an actual Jewish language. So, so it's okay. You read this and you don't get it pronounced right. That, that's all right. As long as you know that these people were real people. But you'll notice that if you know your history, if you know your Old Testament history, that this list doesn't try to hide any of the dirty details about the history of Jesus' family line. But it, but it lets the world know that there were some not-so-family-friendly stories associated with the names in Jesus' family history. Uh, but what's way more interesting than that, I won't get into all the stories, I'll get into one in a little bit, but, but what's way more interesting than that is the fact that Boaz... Obed, Jesse, and David, the last four mentioned there before Solomon, they were all prophesied back in the language. Uh, they're connected to Ruth and even in Genesis. And this is really kind of cool. As you might not have thought much about it before, but the book of Ruth is really the reason that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Uh, Joseph and Mary had to do all sorts of traveling. And we, we know that there's the, the decree that came out from Caesar that Joseph had to go back to his ancestral home, but the reason that he had to go back to Bethlehem as his ancestral home is in Ruth. And so they did all this traveling on account of their first baby, and then they had to go to Egypt to escape um, Herod. But why couldn't they just stay home back in Nazareth and, and avoid all the traffic problems and getting hotel reservations and, and all that kind of stuff? But we, we find out that Ruth is where the line of David is linked to Bethlehem, which causes Joseph to have to go there with his pregnant wife, wife or, or fiance and, and has to register there in his ancestral home. Ruth is, is uh, quite the love story. 
and I'm sure some of you have read it, Ruth winds up as the, the Gentile, she winds up with a Gentile um, daughter-in-law named Naomi, or Ruth is the Gentile, Naomi is Jewish, and both ladies have been widowed. And which means they're they're totally broke because widows were not allowed to own women were not allowed to own property. So if you're widowed, you're kind of left with nothing. Which is why Jesus said, "Take care of the widows," because they couldn't own property. And so here are these two women, and this the non-Jewish woman Ruth <clears throat> has lost her. She's the daughter-in-law of Naomi, Naomi, and they've both lost their lost their husbands. And Naomi. Or Ruth could have gone back to her family. Her husband's died, so she could have rightly gone back to her family, said, my husband's died, I don't have anyone to take care of me. Can I you know, basically live with you? And it would have been okay. But she basically swore to stay by Naomi's side. She said, from here on out, I'm with you, no matter what. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. I am, I am with you forever. And both women, they go back to Israel, and they're broke, so they're gleaning in a field. And, and gleaning is an Old Testament thing where people who harvested their fields, they were supposed to just anything like little bits and pieces of the wheat or whatever they're harvesting that fell or that they missed, they were supposed to just leave in the field. That way, poor people who came along, they could pick up those leftovers and they could survive on those leftovers. That's, so there's this Old Testament law that said that the poor people were allowed to glean the fields after the harvest. Whatever was left that the harvesters missed the poor people could come and they could feed themselves. So both these ladies are in the field gleaning after the harvest so they can feed themselves. And they... I won't tell the whole story. You can read Ruth because it's a great story to read. But they wind up meeting Boaz, who's the owner of the field. And and Ruth is encouraged by Naomi to go and try to make a connection with Boaz. And so she does. It's It's a big kind of climax scene where there's this it's a ceremonial request for Boaz to 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 make her his bride. She sleeps at his feet and it sounds kind of weird to us. But he accepts the offer and spoiler alert, I won't I don't want to ruin it for you, but I'm I'm going to there's this the, the climax of the story is in Ruth 4 where Boaz then he does marry her. He purchases the land back for Naomi and as he marries the as he marries Ruth, he, he kind of accepts Naomi as his mother-in-law. And there's this legal connection where now that, that she's his mother-in-law, Ruth gets to own the property and their descendants get to, to own the property because you know females couldn't pass on. They couldn't own property, so they couldn't pass it on to their descendants. But now that Boaz has bought the property, married the daughter, it's now back in the line of Naomi and you know, so it's, they can continue to pass it on to their descendants. So Boaz becomes the kinsman redeemer, is what it's called in the Old Testament, of Ruth. And both women are cared for, and there's this redemption of the land. Basically, if your land was lost, or if you had to, you got hard times and you had to sell off your land, of someone in the family was allowed to redeem it. They were allowed to come because it was their family ancestral property, they were allowed to come back and redeem the land by buying it back. And that's what Boaz does. He redeems the land and redeems Naomi through that purchase. So Ruth, I'll just read a small section of Ruth chapter 4 verse 7 about what happened. Now this, is, this used to be the customary way to finalize a transaction involving 
redemption in Israel. I just told you what he was doing, redeeming the land. A man would remove his sandal and give it to the other party. So that's how they sealed the business deal. You took off your sandal and gave it to the other person. And this was a legally binding act in Israel. So Boaz wound up with an extra sandal too. Um, So the guardian said to Boaz, the guy who was in charge of it before he bought it back, you may acquire it because he didn't want it. He couldn't afford to, to keep it. So he was allowed, he wanted to sell it back. And he removed his sandal. And then Boaz said to the leaders and all people, you are my witnesses today that I have acquired from Naomi all that belong to Elimelech, Kilion, and Malhan. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabite, the wife of Malhan, Malhan, as my wife to raise up a descendant who will inherit this property so the name of the deceased might not disappear from among his relatives and from his village. You are witnesses today. All the people who were at the gate and the elders replied, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman... Well, before I get to that, so that's the deal. And basically, Boaz is kind of passing off his ability to pass on property to his kids because he's now becoming the son-in-law of Naomi. And so his, what he's buying now is going to be her descendant's property. Not his. So it's kind of a sacrifice that he makes in order to redeem this land for her. And so the, the witnesses say, May the Lord make this woman who is entering your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built up the house of Israel. May you prosper in Ephrathah. That's Bethlehem, Ephrathah. When you hear about the, in uh, Luke, it, it tells about Bethlehem, Ephrathah. That's where they are. And become famous in Bethlehem. May your family become like the family of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, through the descendants the Lord gives you by this young woman. And, and Jesus follows the pattern and becomes the, our kinsman redeemer. Just like Boaz redeemed Naomi and, was, and, and brought her out of poverty, um, we have become the Gentile bride of our Savior. We have become like Ruth to Boaz. He has saved us out of our slavery and, and poverty and He's redeemed us and he's grafted us into the family. So we were Gentiles, outside the family, no ability to inherit anything, dead in our sins, and Jesus is our kinsman redeemer who buys us back and puts us into the family so that we can inherit and pass down. And, and so we're grafted into the family tree just like Ruth was grafted into the Jewish family tree. And that last verse becomes the, the, where the, the people say, May your kids become like Perez. And this is where it gets really weird. To us, no big deal. We don't know much about you know, Perez. Okay. But that last verse is this strange prophecy that they're kind of asking for because the story of Tamar, which is in the genealogy of Jesus, and Tamar and Judah, it's this sordid, twisted affair where Tamar is, has the illegitimate son of her father-in-law, whom she sleeps with to have this illegitimate son, and that's how the family line of the Messiah is carried on. And if somebody was at your wedding party, your reception, and they said, may your family be blessed like this bastard son of an illegitimate connection with a daughter-in-law and her father-in-law, you'd probably kick him out of your wedding party. What are you making that kind of a toast at my party? But that's what they said. May your family be like Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And, and Perez was, was totally illegitimate. And, and Deuteronomy 23 says, and 
in verse 2 it says, a person of illegitimate birth may not enter the assembly of the Lord. To the tenth generation, no one related to him may do so. On top of that, it says, an Ammonite or a Moabite Moabite may not enter the assembly of the Lord to the tenth generation. None of their descendants shall ever do so. So first of all, if you're, if you're an illegitimate child, you're not allowed to go to the temple and take part. And if you're a Moabite, you're also not allowed. And that's who he married. Boaz married Ruth, who was a Moabite woman. So it's kind of an, an odd toast to be giving at this announcement of their, of their nuptials. But what's really wild about this is that if you look at the family line from Perez, whom they were talking about in the, in the genealogy of Jesus, <coughs> Judah and Tamar had Perez, and then it goes Perez, Hezron, Ram, Aminadab, Nashon, Salmon, Boaz, where we're at in the story, Obed, Jesse, and David. David is that tenth generation that was talked about in Deuteronomy. David is where the curse is broken because now he's ten generations away from that original problem. And and he marked the end of the curse, if you want to call it that. So it's enough to make you think that God had all this figured out from the beginning somehow. And it gets even better than that. If you go to Genesis 38 where you can read about the whole strange connection with Judah and Tamar and their kind of weird problems going on. And, and, and you read it in the Hebrew, which none of us can, but uh, you can research this. Interestingly, there's that, that, that structure of sevens again. And if you count off the letters and you, and you count letters at 49 letter intervals, which is seven times seven, and you go... One letter, count 49 letters. The next letter, count 49 letters. The next letter, and you start putting them together, you find the name of Boaz. Okay, coincidence. You know, this is somebody who's generations down the line from when this is written. Um, But, you know, not a likely coincidence, but it's possible. But then if you go down a little bit and you start counting the next letters in 49-letter intervals, you, you find the name of Ruth. So Boaz is encoded all the way back in Genesis and then Ruth is encoded in Genesis back where Tamar and, and her father-in-law are having this relationship and having Perez, both their names. And now we're starting to challenge the coincidence because there's two names. You know, still, it's a very, very unlikely coincidence. But if you keep going at 49-letter intervals, you'll find Jesse and you'll find David and you'll find Obed. So it's like the whole line that goes when we're talking about Perez and you get down to these generations that lead to David, you find all their names. All these names are hidden in the Torah. And this is long before Joshua, long before Judges and, and Samuel, and where we finally meet David. And, and, and of course, David has his own kind of sordid problems where he has the affair with Bathsheba and ends up killing Bathsheba's husband so that he can marry her. So she kind of comes legitimate but he's it's through adultery and murder first and the kingdom is split up after Solomon David and Bathsheba have a child who dies and then Solomon is the first living child that they have out of that relationship and the and the kingdom is split up after Solomon and the northern dynasty of Israel it's 
it's called Israel is the northern and Judah is the southern one. The northern dynasty of Israel goes from bad to worse. There are basically nine different dynasties that all try to, to rule over the northern tribes. And eventually it just gets, it, it goes from bad to worse and things get so terrible that God kind of says, I, I can't deal with you guys anymore. You're gone. And he allows the Assyrians to come in and wipe out the northern tribes and we never hear from them again. And the southern kingdom, which is called the house of Judah, only has one dynasty. It's the family line of David. And it's the family line of David because God decreed that it will always be the family line of David will be the rightful king's of Judah. That's in 2 Samuel 7.12. It says, When the time comes for you to die, God is telling David, I will raise up your descendant, who's going to be Solomon, one of your own sons to succeed you, and I will establish his kingdom, and he will build a house for my name. And Solomon did. He built the temple. Um, and I will make his dynasty permanent. I will become his father, and he will become my son and if you read through the rest of second, that part of 2 Samuel, it's a prophecy about Jesus Christ who will become this permanent ruler in the line of David. And we see how this prophecy points to Jesus. It's, I mean, it's talking about Solomon, obviously, but it's also a prophecy about Jesus Christ. And there's this kind of clear reference to both of them in the, in the passage. But then you get to Matthew as the genealogy continues, and we see Solomon, and we see that line carrying down the Davidic line the royal heirs from Solomon. And it's in verse 7 in Matthew 1, says, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And there are definitely problems with a number of kings in Judah. I mean, the northern tribes were messed up, and the southern tribes had Judah. They were kind of messed up too. They were, God tried to set them straight. He set in prophets and chastised them, and, and He disciplined them with various curses to say, you keep messing up and you're going to keep getting cursed. But when you get to Jeconiah, the last person we just read, also known as Jehoiakim, Jeconiah and Jehoiakim are the same guy, he is so rotten and he does so much evil that God pronounces a blood curse on him and his descendants. In Jeremiah 22.30, it says, the Lord says, enroll this man in the register as though he were childless. Enroll him as a man who will not enjoy success during his lifetime, for none of his sons will succeed him in occupying the throne of David or ever succeed in ruling over Judah. And it's real interesting if you think about that because if the devil was listening in on this proclamation, you can imagine that he is overjoyed now at the monkey wrench that's just been thrown in the Davidic dynasty because Jehoiakim, Jeconiah, is the, the royal heir and his sons must be the royal heirs if the David, the line of David is to continue and it's just been stopped by a pronouncement of God on a curse of Jeconiah and his sons, none of your sons will ever rule Judah. None of your sons will ever sit on the throne. And, and so there's this contradiction because God has promised that one of David's heirs will be a permanent ruler of Israel, but God has just said that the heirs have been cut off. And, and is, so a descendant of David is supposed to rule forever, 
but the royal line has been cut off forever. So what's going to go on? And, and as prophesied in Genesis, the Messiah has to come from the tribe of Judah. And, and more specifically, he has to come as a descendant of David. It has to be that way. That's the prophecy. And you can just picture God's adversaries, the, the, you know, the Satan and, and the demons dancing around like it's a, you know, a political campaign after the vote has just been taken and they found out they won. And they're all cheering and they're celebrating. We did it. We, we stopped this. We, we interjected so much evil in the kingdom. God cut them off and now there's not going to be a Messiah. We've won. The, resec- the, the results are in our favor. Well, as you know from Daniel, when we did our study of Daniel, Judah gets defeated by the Babylonians. That's where Jehoiakim, Jeconiah, is, is, and the whole kingdom is taken captive and they're all carted off to Babylon for 70 years. And Matthew continues to follow the family line of Joseph from Jeconiah, from Jehoiakim. And Matthew 1 at verse 12 says, After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Matan, Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Now, Joseph is the legal father to Jesus. Biologically, he's a stepfather. But for all purposes of the law, he adopted Jesus and Jesus was his legal heir. And we get that from the Torah. If you remember when the, when the Jews escaped Egypt, that they were, they, God had told them laws about how they were to own property and their, you know, who got to pass on the land ownership to their descendants. And it was men. It was men who owned property and men who passed it on to their sons. And women were not allowed to be legal heirs but they didn't, there were some daughters who had no brothers and they wanted the land to stay in their family line. And so they went to Moses and they said, Moses, we got a problem. We've only got daughters in our family. How, it, but you said the, the land is supposed to stay in our family. How do we do this? And so they asked if, if they married men in the tribe, that if, they could, if their sons could still keep the family land. So it, it's kind of like what Boaz did with Ruth. If I marry her, then Naomi comes my becomes my mother-in-law, and it goes. It continues to go. The property continues down through her family line, through that relationship, and that's what's going on. That that's the, what happens from that law. And Moses goes to God, and, and they make that exception, all the way back in Numbers for that kind of an inheritance situation. If you just got daughters, you can still get married, and if it's in the tribe, then it will still pass down through the daughters. And the, remain in the, the property will remain in the family line. And when they get to the promised land, they remind Joseph of the rule. Joseph, remember, we're allowed to keep the property. And so they, Joseph says, okay, it's your property. And so they, they, a guy marries one of these daughters. And the son-in-law is adopted as the legal son and heir to the father of the bride. And, and this specific law anticipates the lineage of Jesus. And herein, as you may have guessed, lies probably the most important reason for the virgin birth. The genealogy of Matthew follows the legal royal lineage from Solomon to Joseph. And the blood curse prevents a blood descendant of Joseph from ever taking the throne. But since Jesus is not a blood descendant of Joseph, he 
is not cut off, but he's still the legal heir. And so he is legally allowed to assume the throne of David. Because he's not a blood heir, but he, he does, he, because his father-in-law has married into Mary's family, it gets passed down legally. He is, Jesus is an actual royal heir of David. And then the genealogy of Matthew, you know, it follows that legal royal lineage. But Jesus is also a blood relative to David through Mary's line, through, an, through his mother. And the genealogy of Luke is different from the genealogy of Matthew because of that. In, instead of going through Solomon um, to, from David to Solomon, it goes from David to Nathan. Solomon was the first living um, descendant of David's relationship to Bathsheba, and Nathan was his brother. He was the second living descendant. And in Luke 3.23, the Greek word that describes Christ's relationship to Joseph is it's pronounced nomizo, which means to hold by custom or, or by law. And so Joseph, in the, in the genealogy of Luke, it gets to Heli and then to Joseph. Really, it should read that Heli is that Joseph is the son-in-law of Heli, who is Mary's father. And so through his earthly parents, Jesus is both in the house of David, the royal heir of David, and in the line of David, the bloodline through his mother. So he's both the legal royal heir and a blood descendant of King David through his different parents. So the virgin birth is very important because it's alluded to in the Garden of Eden like we talked about when the serpent is cursed. It's prophesied in in Isaiah that behold, the, the virgin shall conceive a son and it's fulfilled in the purpose of the Gospels. And we get that when a son is born and a child is born and a son is given, that covers both. A child is born is a, a human kid, and a son is given is the Son of God. And it covers both those relationships, not both the, a connection to the divine and a connection to the human. In, in his parents, Joseph, he's got the connection to the royal line of David. In Mary, he's got the bloodline of David. And in Matthew one twenty. It says, but then he had considered this. Behold, an angel of the Lord. This is Joseph. And he hears that Mary is pregnant. And he's like, wait a second, you're pregnant. This relationship is off. But he loved Mary. He didn't want to have her stoned to death for adultery. So he's going to put her away quietly. And it says, behold, he had considered this. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call him his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus became the prophesied Messiah, who was written about in so many ways in Scripture from, from the beginning, from Genesis all the way down to the, the Gospel, with, with this encoding that makes it undeniable that it's the hand of God, who's not only been recording all this, but has been an orchestrating events down through human history so that Jesus could come and be the Savior of the world to save the world from their sins. And so this Christmas is our opportunity to turn to Jesus and say, yes, Lord, we want to find that renewal. We want to be redeemed. Just like you redeemed so many others. Just like Boaz redeemed Naomi and Ruth. We want to be redeemed from our sin and from our death and, and from the nasty things that we've got ourselves in, Jesus 
We want to repent and we want to live a new life in you and we want to grow up and we want to start following the life that you led, the, the sinless life from the time that you were a baby until the time that you were dead and resurrected. You were perfect. We want to be like that. Please help us. Live in us. Give us that Holy Spirit that you promised. That's what Christmas is about. It's this amazing thing that God has been planning from the very beginning to rescue us from sin and death. And Christmas is our chance to take that that blessed, wonderful gift of grace, that Christmas gift of redemption and salvation for all who have sinned and are willing to repent and believe to turn from their sins and find new life in Jesus Christ. That's what Christmas is about. And now you've learned some the, the rest of the story. Some interesting things about the, the begats in the family line of Jesus. And I pray that it, it makes a difference. I pray that it helps you to understand and have stronger faith and to live your life in a new way And may the Lord get the glory for it. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that you have been at work, that in every single tiny intricate detail you have been at work. And even though the enemy has been trying to thwart your plans and trying to mess things up all along the way, you knew exactly what you were doing and you had everything figured out and you knew how to counteract every act of of Satan. And God, we're so grateful that you know how to counteract our own acts of sin too that You were willing to give Your life so that our sins could be forgiven. And we submit ourselves to You, God, for Your grace, for Your mercy. We don't deserve it, God. We've done nothing to deserve Your love, to deserve Your grace. And we're so grateful that You're willing to give it to us anyway. And we pray that You would help us to understand Your love and Your grace and Your mercy a little bit more this Christmas season and that we'd be able to pass it down to others who desperately need to know what it is to have new life in Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.